From the mouse-infested studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, it is time for another minty episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Will mint planted around your perimeter deter miserable Mises from dining on your mounds bars? On today's show, we'll reveal the surprising answer and put another stake in the heart of those miserable mothballs. Otherwise, it's a fabulous phone call show, cats and kittens. Yes, potential guests are busy getting minty fresh. So we will take that heap and helping of your telecommunicated questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and effusively elongated enunciations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, true believers, because it's all coming up faster than you not finding those distinctive little pellets in your pantry. Right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. Plants and gardens can have an enormous impact on our everyday lives. At PHS, they believe that a seed can be more than a plant and that gardening can be more than a hobby. PHS is working to plant with purpose and help build healthier communities. Learn more about involvement at phs.org impact. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and I am really excited about the question of the week we have this time around. It's some new and startling information about mints and mice. You really won't want to miss this one. And you won't. Just stay tuned through a bunch of fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Tom, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Tom. How you doing? I'm doing so well. So thrilled to be on the show. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, where are you so thrilled? I am in Lakewood, Colorado, but I was born and bred in New Jersey. I was living in the Princeton area for uh, the last eight, nine years or so. Okay, so what part of uh, Colorado is Lakewood in? So it's uh, just outside of Denver. Oh, okay, um, okay. Wasn't like where I was in um, uh, in Cortez and Durango, uh, eight thousand feet in the air all the time. Sure. Yeah, we're about same uh, same as Denver, about yeah. a mile up. All right. Well, what can we do you for? Um, well, we. Uh, We've started a rather large composting project. We've been collecting neighbor's leaves, and um, I was doing some raking um, a couple weeks ago and uh, was noticing that the, the dry grass was coming up uh, into the rake, and then I was just starting to worry, uh, sort of worry about whether or not the, uh, the grass was treated and if a small amount of treated grass um, might get into um, the compost and create a problem. Okay, so this is leaves you, if you're raking them, they're on your property, right? Uh, actually, this was a, a neighbor's property. Um, we, we do have a, a blower and a, a, sh a mulching shredder right. bought. Um, and so, uh, but at this particular moment, you know, I was raking and um, raking it into a pile to be able to shred. Um, and then um, noticed that the grass was, was getting in there. Okay. Well, um, and you're, uh, you say you have a leaf blower that has a reverse attachment, right? 
Yeah, it's got a 16 to 1 mulching ratio. That's excellent. And uh, what's the power? Is it gas, electric, uh, rechargeable battery? Yeah, it's electric. Okay, plug-in. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, if if the neighbor wouldn't mind, it occurs to me, and thank you for s suggesting that because that's you know I might not have thought of it myself. Um, sucking the leaves up with a leaf blower set on reverse um, wouldn't bring up the kind of grass clippings that raking um, a dry lawn would, and then you wouldn't have to worry about it. Um, but again, this is a neighbor. So you can just politely ask them whether they do or not. You know, when I was in, um, I've been in both. I've been in uh, the Boulder area and, um, like I said, up in the hills in Durango and Cortez. And it didn't occur to me that you guys were a, a big site for chemical lawn care companies. Um, and I would not worry about a tiny amount but obviously, um, and, and for people that don't understand why we're worried about this, it turns out that some of the herbicides, the persistent herbicides that are used by lawn care companies can survive the composting process. And the compost uh, can kill uh, plants when, even after the composting is complete. But you know, this, all of that research, all of these instances and case studies came from places where people were actively composting their grass clippings. Okay. Which we advise against for several reasons. First, you know, there's that possibility if it's not your lawn. But second, anytime you remove the clippings from a lawn, you make it uh, more food needy. If you just return your clippings to the lawn in most areas, that's enough food to keep a scrappy looking lawn going. But if you collect your clippings and do something with them, you're literally starving the grass to death. Yeah. So the, the, bo the bottom answer here is if we're just talking a couple of dried grass clippings in a huge pile of shredded leaves, I wouldn't think twice about it. But this is the very reason that a lot of giant public facilities have big signs up now saying no grass clippings. Right. Yeah, doing um, last week on your episode regarding uh, leaf shredders. Uh, yeah, I know you used the term uh, leaf rustling. Yes, and I've been do I've been doing a bit of that, and I've been uh, you know dumping the the bags of leaves that other people have scooped up, been dumping them out, and just kind of sifting through and looking to make sure that there's no significant amounts of of grass clippings in there. Um, just trying to be kind of uh, this is my actually sort of first time composting, so I think I'm um, kind of hypersensitive about wanting to get it right. Um, well, it, it is a natural process. Um, I, again, the kind of amounts, you know, for instance, what would you do if you got a bag that was half grass clippings? I would just throw it away. There you go. I think you're absolutely fine, and I think you're going to make good compost. Um, the issue in your locale is to, you, you're probably gonna to have to artificially wet the compost um, mm -hmm. yeah. over the winter because you know, you're so dry, you're so rain scarce yeah. up there. Uh, did the wildfires affect you? Uh, we've been getting a lot of smoke. Mm -hmm. um, the last, last week it's been, it's been pretty clear here, but um, 
I know someone that just had to move out of state because of uh, just you know asthma and health conditions. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's been a rough um, summer for you guys. Yeah, we haven't. We had snow on Labor Day, and you know, the last time we had rain before that was uh, I don't know, probably July. Um, definitely dry. Yeah, it can be a difficult uh, region. Uh, to garden in, um, be, you know, because of the uncertainties of frost and the lack of rain. But all you have yeah. to do is step outside at night and look at the sky and you remember why you're there, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so... I actually have... Go ahead. I was going to say, I have a, a, a couple quick questions about the actual composting process. Go ahead. I don't know if you have time. So I've got a batch filling right now, um, and I'm wondering what to look for. Um, it feels warm in there. Great. Um, I don't, and I, it's, I've got it in a tumbler, um, so it's easy enough to add water and, and to, you know, tumble it and aerate it. But um, I'm wondering, um, in terms of heat, should I be taking its temperature? Um, you can if be- you want. The compost thermometers that are readily available out there are generally used for very big open piles. Not so much a tumbler. And in this case, a tumbler makes a lot of sense because it's going to retain the moisture. So um, in in a tumbler, you have to follow the batch method, which means once you got the thing filled up and you start turning it, you don't add any material till it's done. And it's done when you can't see any sign of the original ingredients. Okay. Um, also, in terms of storing it, I've I read in your compost book um, about you know keeping it in uh, garbage can with the lid open so it doesn't get moldy. Um, I'm wondering, you know, I'm wanting to just have a lot of compost on hand for next growing season. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just kind of worrying about you know how long does this I would hot not compost um, kind of if. Going, how long, if I, if I recommended that, I was wrong. I do recommend that for shredded leaves um, okay. to fill up garbage cans and trash cans and even trash bags with. But compost should be applied to your garden when it's finished. So don't, okay. don't worry about the timing so much, but when you get a finished batch, just put it in your garden and then most of the nutrients will still be there. Again, you're not in an area where you have to worry about runoff so much. So am I going to lose all some of those qualities of the living microorganisms that occur in the hot compost if I'm putting it down, if I'm making batches now and it's going to be sitting out there all winter? Well, it, it depends on the weather, but that's where it should go. It should, okay. it should definitely go around your plants and around your garden once it's done. And hopefully you'll have some finished compost at planting time. And then when you reintroduce those microorganisms, they'll just colonize the whole area. Okay. So then should I wait to start cooking batches until, I don't know, February or March? No, no, because they wouldn't nearly be done. Okay. No, you, you, you make your compost when the leaves fall and you shred them. Okay. All right? Great. All right. Good luck to you, sir. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Eight three three seven two seven ninety five double eight. Nathan, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Nathan. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I am just Ducky. Thanks for asking. Ducky always likes to be a part of the show. 
And uh, where is Nathan Good? Uh, Nathan is good in Fisher, Illinois. Oh, okay. Uh, not sure Fisher. What, what are you close to? Um, it's about, I'd say, 25 minutes from the University of Illinois in Champaign. Oh, okay, sure. All right. What can we do you for? So we moved into a house at the end of August, and there's a um, asparagus patch established there, but kind of drawn out where I want a... Um, flower beds and stuff like that, I'm contemplating trying to move asparagus, and I'm not sure if it can be done, how it can be done. Um, so, yeah. Is the patch productive? Uh, yes. And when we moved into the house, it had been vacant for a little while, so I just, uh, I think last weekend, cut down like probably 10 to 15 stalks that were a couple feet tall. Right, the fronds. Yes. Um, and did you see the actual asparagus harvest? Um, I have not. Oh, okay. So this, this would be your first year. Yeah. Okay. And what did you say you wanted to plant in its place? Um, I wanted to just do like a flower bed right there and then move kind of my vegetables and everything a little further back from the road. Okay, yeah, I'm kind of stuck with a garden pretty close to the road, and, you know, sometimes that's the only place you got enough sun. <laughs> well, you know, I don't recommend it. What I would recommend first is, is try to find a way to leave that where it is and put your flowers um, someplace else. Is it, is it the fact that it's, like, in the primary view of the house and you want something nicer? Um, not particularly. It's kind of off to the, like, side of our main window up looking at the living room. Um, it's just, I don't know, it's right up next to the road. I want to do a hedge of, like, lavender. Oh, okay. That sounds nice. kind of a, you know, a flower bed right there up close to the road where people can see it and not just have an asparagus patch right there. Okay. I, I can understand that. Well, right now would be the time to do this, but when when did you just move into this house? Um, it was towards the end of August. Don't you have enough work to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we were doing beforehand. Yeah, move in ready. That means you gotta fix the plumbing, you gotta fix the electric, you gotta fix the windows, try to figure out why this outlet doesn't work. <laughs> You know, um, if you're up for it, I would do it like almost literally right now. Because you said you already cut the fronds down. Yeah. Okay, so the plant is no longer getting um, energy from sunlight. But also we're at the time of year where the sunlight is not conducive to plants anyway. So if you, if you want to give it a try, this would be the time because the plants are going dormant and moving them will wake them up a little bit, but not much. And since they are kind of charged, if nobody's been harvesting them for years, you should get a monster harvest next year. Um, but once you stop harvesting asparagus, you know, you gotta let those last little guys grow and absorb solar energy through those fronds to keep the the patch going. And obviously you can't do that in transplant at the same time. So I would say this is really the only 
um, safe time to do it. Um, the, the crowns are going to probably be deeper than you expected. Um, and my advice is always to have the new site ready before you start digging up the old stuff. And okay. what asparagus would like is for you to mix in a lot of well-rotted horse manure into the trenches or whatever you're going to dig out. They love a high nitrogen feeding. And, you know, farmers have been using their composted horse manure for this purpose for, you know, untold decades. And it's classic and it works well. Okay. All right, but I would say this is the only time of year where it's both safe to do and they're going to have enough time to settle in and maybe give you a harvest next season. Well, perfect. All right? All righty. Well, thanks, Mike. All right. Good luck, Nathan. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind you that leaves only fall once a year. But if used correctly, they can benefit your garden 365 and 24-7. But don't go shredding that bounty just yet, because we'll be right back with important information about mice, mint, and mothballs, and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. Plants and gardens can have an enormous impact on our everyday lives. At PHS, they believe that a seed can be more than a plant and that gardening can be more than a hobby. PHS is working to plant with purpose and help build healthier communities. Learn more about involvement at phs.org impact. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and I am honestly excited about this question of the week coming up at the end of the show. I learned something new, and I'm going to pass it on to you. In the meantime, we are not passing on your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Patrick, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. How you doing, sir? Good to hear you. I am just ducky, thanks for asking, Pat, and I'm glad to be heard. Um, how are you, sir? I'm very well. It's a beautiful day and here outside Media PA. Okay, so you are just outside of Media PA. Uh, what can we do you for? So I'm a teacher at a, uh, at a wonderful school uh, out here in, uh, in the greater media area, mm-hmm. and well, my school received a grant to put in uh, a wonderful little uh, garden uh, device called a farm bot. Which a, is, a, 
a farm BOT? Correct. Is that like a robot you make out of uh, uh, carrots and tomatoes? <laughs> it's similar. It's a little similar. It might be second generation. But it's a, it's a digital robot that kind of moves, you know, very la- laterally and front and back, side to side, uh, over a raised bed on rails. And the idea being it's, it's going to move over a perfect raised bed. No one ever has to step in the bed. It's always going to apply the right amount of water, etc. My problem is that, it, that the raised bed was built by a builder and not by a gardener. And so that it was made with uh, pressure-treated wood. So I would love this thing to get off the ground. I probably can ask him to remake the frame right away. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if it would be safe maybe to grow annuals, if it would be safe to maybe grow like tomato starts that were only going to be transplanted into real, you know, into safer, a uh, safer situation, uh, or what my options might be to get a little bit of use out of this, out of this pressure-treated raised bed. Well, that's a scary story. Very appropriate for this show. Um, do you, how big is this bed? Fourteen by ten. Okay, so it's not a true raised bed for humans. It's designed for this robot yeah, waterer. You, yeah, right. There's no, uh, there's no way to put like a wheelbarrow in between, you know, rows or anything. Well, riddle me this: um, Is the robot going to harvest the crops? I think it is supposed to. Wow, so, where'd you get this robot? I don't know. I mean, Google it. You'll find it easily enough. Farmbot. I mean, it looks like a, a tech that probably one day would be great for like urban gardeners and urban greenhousemen and people like that. You know, I, I hear there are some wonderful automated, you know, food-growing techs coming online now. I have a feeling this is kind of a bit experimental. Uh, you know, eventually future generations of this will be, you know, will be really, really cool, which is why they're probably willing to give it away. Well, um, yeah. But if you go Google FarmBot, you'll, you'll find some pretty cool footage of the thing. It's, it's pretty amazing. So this FarmBot is a very interesting technology. I assume it's, you know, the early versions of something that we'd like to make use commercially or maybe like for urban gardeners and urban greenhousemen. And I assume that they have, you know, long-term plans for improvements to this, and maybe Mm -hmm. that's why they're willing to give this one away. Okay. So, um... Do you know what kind of pressure-treated wood was used? There are many different types out there. You can still get the old arsenic-treated wood, uh, but some newer woods are heavily saturated with copper and others with boric acid. Uh, Do you know what your wood is? I do not, although I could probably find out. I suspect it's the old-fashioned arsenic. Yeah, well, if it's the old-fashioned arsenic, I, I would get it out of there. The, okay. the, the danger with the old-style pressure-treated wood, creosote or arsenic, is, yes, the plants will take up some of the poison, but anybody who works with the wood is at much greater risk of having serious health problems. So mm. you'd have a bed that no students would be allowed to touch barehanded. Wow. And um, this robot that you were given, 
it, it can't be adjusted to be on um, a less wide track. It has to be on this. Um... To my knowledge, it's built for the. I mean, we we were told we were told the dimensions to build it in. Uh, so I assume that you probably couldn't make adjustments with this particular one. At the same time, if it's a computer, you could probably reprogram it. But the thing is built here on the bed of our school. Right. Uh, it hasn't been used in, in part because you know, I'm probably the most I'm probably the one people would most want to embrace this, and I was hesitant from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then COVID hit, and you know, and then we just you know, so it's also it's also kind of sat, um, you know, just growing you know crabgrass um, for a little while. Yeah, and how but, you go, is the robot going to weed? Well, I, I probably have to weed it once. My, I, probably, I would probably weed it, solarize it, you know, weed it again, you know, uh, before planting in it. At, at, at earliest, we'd maybe be planting in the spring. But if 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 the wood is unsafe for any use, I, I, I'm not going to, you know, I can't associate myself with it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's the wrong way to go. And I think it's the wrong way to go in a number of different directions. Um, one of the points of raised beds, one of the points of organic gardening, uh, one of the points of this show is to get people involved with plants. Um, And now you've got a machine in between the people and the plants. And I think that sends the wrong message. There's enough being done, especially with kids. Did you say you're an alternative high school? Correct. So, I mean, these are kids who are buried in their phones, who are buried in video games. Um, and if the robot does everything, they're not going to learn anything. Fair point. I, you know, I, I think that the people who, who uh, you know, who, mar- who developed and marketed this thing, uh, you know, do want to work with schools. There are curricular materials that are available. Uh, you know, again, I, I'd like to... Uh, I, I'd like to see kids getting their hands dirty as much as possible and sweating more frequently than they do and doing hard work. But I, I could see its uses. I could also see its uses in the long term as, you know, as having maybe long-term commercial applications. See, I've, so I've, seen, I've seen these robots. I have seen robots that water large numbers of plants and hanging baskets in giant greenhouses. I visited a farm that grows a tremendous number of perennials for sale, and they had cute little robots that looked like R2-D2, and they could position the pots in a much more efficient way than humans could. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of an industrial application. You know, school gardens are difficult enough because, you know, when the garden is the most productive, the kids are on vacation. And especially right. now, I presume they're on vacation all the time, unfortunately. Well, I'm happy to say my guys are back full time and it is so much fun to have them in the building. Okay. Uh, and my kids and my kids are and my kids definitely pose unique challenges, but it has been great these last couple of weeks. We okay, came back. So um, right now it's full of weeds, you say? Yeah, I mean, right now I'd be cleaning it up to get it ready for something to do in the spring. Is the robot on top? It kind of, it kind of is on like a grid system, like rails, and mm-hmm. the rails are on. But it's already on, installed. The, correct. 
Well, what I would suggest is if you can get the thing weeded quickly, it would be a perfect time to plant spring bulbs in there if the robot is capable of doing that. Um, mm. Nobody's, nobody's going to eat the flowers, and this is something that the kids could at least watch being planted and then watch them emerge in the spring and see the flowers and understand that cycle. If it wasn't pressure-treated wood, I would also urge you to grow some uh, garlic in there. But, I, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't want anything in there that's, that's uh, food. And, right. you know, you know the, the wood itself should have little pieces of paper stapled to each end, and they reveal the composition. Did the builder remove every single one of those? No, but I, I think I can find. I think I can kind of network my way back to the person who put it together and, mm -hmm. and probably find out. Oh, so but you, you have the tags. I don't know if we have the tags, but I think I can find out whether it was the old style arsenic or. I, are you saying a, like a boric acid base would be considerably safer? Um, yes, right? boric acid would be safer, but there are tremendous concerns about the saturated copper as mm -hmm. well. You know, I would have rather I would have rather just used plain old wood or pavers or you know something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, my rule on this always been is just go ahead and buy pine and rebuild it in ten years. Yes, exactly years, right. You probably want to you'll want to change something anyway. Okay. Well, but if you want to get if you want to get it weeded right now, this is exactly the right time. You say you're in media PA. It's the perfect time to fill that thing with spring bulbs. Again, as long as the robot can do it. If the robot can't do it, uh, wear gloves, wear long pants, long sleeves, wash everything when you're done. But by definition, you're walking all over the raised bed and um, denying yourself the benefits. I do think if, I do think if, yeah, it's probably 10 feet wide. With a stretch, you know, a lot of hard work, I could probably get it weeded without Without um, Well, sure, because you can use hose with long handles, but then, right. th then we go to planting the bulbs. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, Even if I got some of it planted, though, just because, you, I mean, cause, again, as you would suggest, especially if it's not really safe, at most we'd be just giving kids a taste, you know? Um, and that's okay for me. That, that's all right. I okay. love the kids to get a taste and maybe someday get excited about gardening. But for school gardens in areas where the kids are off for the summer, I really recommend overwintering crops because then they can see it, they can take part in it. Um, if tomatoes are growing there in June or July, there's no connection. Right. All right, well that. listen, I gotta go. I wish you luck. Find out about the wood. See if the robot can be adjusted because in the best of all possible worlds, you want a safer, um, safer form of siding of the of the of the framing and see if the robot can be adjusted for a real raised bed which would be no wider than four feet then the kids can go in there get their hands dirty and all would be right with the world danger will robinson danger danger will robinson danger mr president status control on jupiter 2 as of this moment the spacecraft has passed the limits of our galaxy. It's presumed to be hopelessly lost in space.
identify yourself. Robot model B9, designed and computerized as a mechanized electronic aid for Earth voyagers engaged in astral expeditions. What are you? I am a robot of the class M3, programmed to provide information and support to all Jupiter personnel. You are correct. It does not compute. your garden producing more than you know what to do with? Or are bugs and herbivores and disease getting it all before you can? You Bet Your Garden is your clearinghouse for organic information. If you give us a call at 833-727-9588 and I'll tell you what to do. Well, they saw it first in Southeast PA and it's spreading further every day. It's doing our crops and trees a lot of harm. It's an insect species that's not native, reproducing at a very high rate of speed, and folks, that's cause for some alarm. Now, once you dig what I have dug, you'll be hit to this invasive bug, and friend, you'll want to help to stop it spread. And when you see that little critter gonna take a swing like a home run hitter and smash that spotted lantern, fly dead. Die, 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 spotted lantern, fly. When you see me coming, you'll know your end is nigh. I got a fly swatter, I'm gonna chase you all the way back to Asia. Die, 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 spotted lantern fly. In the fall, find the eggs on a wall tree trunk and scrape them off into an alcohol dunk, and surely that will cause them to expire. When the nymphs hatch from the eggs in spring, wrap your trees with a sticky tape ring, but save the birds by covering with chicken wire. Tree of Heaven is their preferred host. Yeah, that's the tree it likes the most. So if you got one in your yard, chop it down. Don't transport firewood, brush, or debris, because they'll hide in there and you'll never see them. Hitch a ride with you to the very next town. Die, 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 spotted lanternfly. When you see me coming, you'll know your end is nigh. I got a flash water. I'm going to chase you all the way back to Asia. Die, 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 spotted lanternfly. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind you to resist the impulse to prune anything at this time of year, or you run the risk of losing those precious plants. But don't go looking for the reasons why at the question and answer section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with important information about mice, mint, and mothballs, and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mothball Mike McGrath. And you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA.
Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to an especially thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens, in just a little bit. I can't wait to tell you what I learned about mice, mint, and mothballs from a fabulous website called Mousetrap Monday on YouTube, which I absolutely recommend. In the meantime, I recommend you listen to a couple more phone calls at 833-727-9588. Vicki, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you, Mike. How are you doing, Vicki? I'm doing great. I'm from eastern North Carolina. Okay, very good. Eastern North Carolina. So how far from the ocean? Um, As the crow flies, about 90 miles. Oh, okay. Well, it's not as eastern as I would like to be in the Carolinas. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I don't want to be on the coast because we have too many hurricanes. Yeah, we certainly have, especially lately. You're right. All right, what can we do for Vicki? Tuck safely into the center of North Carolina. Okay, um, my first question was, why does wisteria reach out to the nearest thing to latch on to? Because there are, there are two types of plants that are normally trellised. Um, there are plants that reach out by themselves, and there are plants that need to be artificially supported. Um, oh, uh, clematis, uh, clematis uh, immediately comes to mind. But the self-supporting climbers, what they will do is they will reach out randomly at first, but if they don't get to something, if they don't sense anything, um, that piece of the plant, that stringer that's reaching out, it'll move around, and it will keep moving around until it either senses it's so close to something that it kind of gets a bounce off it, or as soon as it finds something. But then that tendril, just wraps around. I actually almost lost a big evergreen tree because it took too long for me to notice that the wisteria had latched onto one of the lower branches and almost like a guy with a winch was pulling it to the ground. The, tr <laughs> the tree was pointing sideways by the time I got out there to free it. Um, wisteria uh, it probably has the strongest grip of any, right. yeah. any vining plant. Yeah. Okay, all right, thanks. I just didn't know if it had a brain or not, but I guess it does. Well, you know, that's kind of interesting. Uh, we would think of plants not having intelligence. There's so much embedded in their DNA. One thing I learned back when I was the editor of Organic Gardening is that if sweet corn 
is attacked by the corn borer, which is a caterpillar laid by a night-flying moth, it can actually send out a signal to bring in the tiny wasps that parasitize caterpillars and essentially save it from being eaten. So, you know, whether we call that intelligence or inherent ability, there's <laughs> stuff going on there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, um, another question. Go ahead. My planting beds have settled down um, from the dirt when I first put it in, you mm -hmm. know, in the springtime, and I want to uh, plant some. Is it okay to put more dirt on top, about three inches, without digging up the bulb? Oh, you got spring bulbs in there? Well, uh, yeah, there's spring bulbs in there, and I'm I'm going to be getting some more bulbs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the plant bed is about six inches, and it's settled down till it's about three inches now. Yes. Um, the same thing has happened to my beds, and over the past mm -hmm. two or three years, I've had them all rebuilt higher. Um, but you, obviously, you don't want to disturb your bulbs. One, you know, we're talking about the same thing. Uh, one of the most fascinating things I learned early on was that the height you plant spring bulbs to some degree doesn't matter because if you plant them too low, they'll kind of work their way up in the soil. If, if you plant them too high, they'll work their way down. They're very good at finding the optimum uh, distance from the soil line from you. So I would not worry about it, but what I would do now, because you don't want that soil to get any heavier, is I would get a big bag of perlite, you know, the, the white, right. my, white material, mined, uh, great at enhancing drainage and lightening up a bed. I would mix that in with your new soil, and then, yes, I see nothing wrong with having another three inches over top. The bulbs will emerge just fine. Okay. And then do I put a layer of compost on top of it? Well, uh, you know, if you're and well, you're just talking about topsoil to begin with, right? Yeah. yeah. I would I would mix all three. I would um, put okay. I would put some dirt, some tops, uh, some topsoil, some perlite, and some compost into a big wheelbarrow. Mix that okay. up real good, and then use that for the new planting surface. That'll be perfect. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. Now, um, can I ask another question? Just last one. Okay. Um, I have a blaze rose that's about 15 years old. Right. And, and it blooms beautifully in May. And so um, when the blooms are just about, you know, been up there for two or three weeks, all of a sudden, overnight, something comes in and eats all the leaves off the stem. All the leaves? Yeah. And the leaves are gone. They're not just variegated, right. not gone. veiny They're or something. They're not on the ground. They're gone. But the buds are still there. Yeah. Well, actually, I know the buds are gone, too. Yes. Okay. That's evil squirrels. Evil squirrels? Yeah. They, they eat at night? Don't they sleep? No, they never sleep. They just figure out more ways to yeah. torment us, you know. Uh, something like that would either be squirrels or deer. Um, no, no, it's not deer. It's squirrels because I've got a huge pecan tree. Oh, yeah, you're doomed. 
what I would suggest is look at motion-activated sprinklers. And, okay. and as soon as your roses uh, start to bud, point the uh, sprinkler at them, because then when the squirrel lands on the plant, he'll get a couple cups of cold water thrown at him. I always wondered, because it would be like just half of the branches, not all the branches. They are mysterious and evil. <laughs> I know they're evil. <laughs> I've been dealing with them for 17 years. Yeah. I've never got a single pecan off that tree. Oh, I believe you. I believe you. It's a tough it's a tough contest. All right. Well good luck to you, Vic. Thank you, Mike, and thank you so much. I just love your program. Oh, thank you so much. You take care. Okay, you too. Bye bye. Talk to you bye bye. As promised, it's the question of the week you've been waiting to hear. We're calling it of mice and mint and mothballs. James in Oklahoma City titles his email, Mint versus Mighty Mouse and his friends and family. He writes, is there any scientific basis to show that planting mint around your house will repel mice and other rodents? This is the time of year that they're trying to get into the house, of course. The short answer is no. The long answer is that it appears that mint used in a really different way will keep mice from eating your unprotected edibles. The short story, as far as I can research, there is absolutely no proof that any plant in the ground will keep insects and or vermin out of a designated area. Yes, if you planted nothing but strongly scented mints tightly together in your garden, there probably wouldn't be any mice going in there. But that's very different from protecting a house. You would essentially have to dig a moat around your entire place and fill it with mint, which sounds like too much trouble to protect your supply of Triscuits. And within a few years, your entire neighborhood would be overwhelmed with mint, and then the mice would no longer be your primary problem. Let's take this moment to remind and or inform everyone out there that any plant in the mint family, which includes plants without mint in their name, like lemon balm, is difficult to impossible to control once planted. Mints are wonderful plants, but they are aggressive, invasive, and harder to kill than Mickey's broomstick in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Back to mice, neither mighty nor Mickey. I didn't want to rely on my old knowledge here, so I did a fair amount of new research and found an excellent YouTube channel called Mouse Trap Monday, wherein a guy named Sean Woods is testing everything that people say will repel mice, describing his research projects in depth along the way. These aren't just your average YouTube videos. These are citizen science at its highest level, and they're also fun to watch. I'll get to his revealing test of mint in a minute. But one of the things that impressed me most were the things that he tested that didn't work. Irish spring. The mice actually ate that horrifically scented soap. The dreaded Carolina Reaper hot pepper. The mice enjoyed eating that pepper as well. Dryer sheets, predator urines, all were a bust. So you can't fault Sean for being somewhat doubtful about peppermint oil. But he tested a commercial product from Victor, the world's leading producer of mouse and rat traps, bad-shaped holders filled with the essential oils of peppermint. 
For his experiments, he created a specially constructed drawer out in the barn. And like all good scientists, he made two, one containing the supposedly active substance being tested and one that was baited without the supposed repellent. Both drawers had just one tiny entrance hole that would allow mice to enter and leave. And both, as per previous experiments, were baited with sunflower seeds, a favorite food of miserable Mises. The package he purchased had two mint-releasing egg-shaped capsules, which he hung at opposite ends of the test drawer, poured some seeds into the drawer, and shut it normally. I'll let you know why that's important in a minute. In what I'll call the control drawer, he just put the seeds and then slid that drawer back into place. In an additional factor, both brilliant and seriously creepy, he had night vision cameras set up to capture the action. The footage shows mice coming into the drawer with the mint-releasing devices and exiting faster than a vampire in a crucifix factory, while every seed in the untreated drawer was dined upon with fervor. I am therefore convinced that essential oil of mint placed in the drawers and pantries in which you would normally find evidence of mouse invasion is a great idea. And yes, you can grow the actual mint and use whole branches crushed up to release the scent or extract the oil yourself. Just try and contain the spread of those plants and replace your homemade repellent every 30 days or so. More importantly to me, Sean also provided concrete evidence of the ineffective of a popular but highly dangerous home remedy, mothballs. Thankfully, he spends the first minute of this video explaining the serious toxicity of these little cancer bombs and warns that it is a violation of federal law to use mothballs against mice. But I would never throw this guy under the Federale's bus because he proved that mothballs do not work. Same two drawers. First, he puts one mothball into the corner of each test drawer. Hey, Sean, wear gloves next time and have your kidney checked soon. The mice enter and gorge themselves on the seeds despite the mothballs. He tries again, this time slitting open the plastic and putting in the entire package. And he cheats in favor of the mothballs by putting a hard plastic cover on top to concentrate the fumes. Now, you and I would run out of this death trap immediately, but the mice are undeterred, eating every seed. This reinforces what I've been saying about mothballs for untold decades. Do not use them. They are more toxic to you than your intended target. And now we also know that they just don't work. Thank you, Sean. I'm now a fan of Mousetrap Monday. Well, that sure was some good information about deterring miserable nieces now, wasn't it? Luckily, you can read that article over at your leisure or your leisure because the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be. Say it with me, kids. YouBetYourGarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week where? At the Gardens Alive website.
Yikes, my producer is threatening to mangle my mint if I don't get out of the studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse of a question. Teaming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please, please, please include your location. And don't say like you're in the kitchen or garage or anything like that. You'll find all of our contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows, and links to our internationally renowned, 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 no, that's the, we're, you know, renowned, that's the classy way of saying it, our internationally renowned podcast at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Radio in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when he fell asleep in Dulcimer Grove and woke up 100 years later to a world with greatly improved plumbing. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is always cheerful, Charlie Sarah. Our social media director used to be Amanda McGrath. Now she is known as Amanda Norfleet. Either way, check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Tavia Minnick. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is judicious Jake Boyer. Our harassed and harried director of direction is Javier Diaz. Our usual gang of idiots includes Jazzy Jeff Frederick, the esteemed Eric Werner, Zach the Takwasneski, and gentleman John Flynn. Not to be outclassed, our beloved CEO Tim Fallon says that he's so classy, he changes his shirt after every order of lamb chops. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and I'll be busy being outside sucking up leaves and picking some mint until I see you again next week. On many stations and formats, our next show will first air on All Hallows' Eve. I'm Mike McGrath, and on the next thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden, I promise to come up with something more spooky than that guy in Sleepy Hollow with a flaming pumpkin for a head. Plus your flaming phone calls. That's on the next You Bet Your Garden. Uh -huh.